You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. My friends call me Garrett. There are some who call me Tim, <laughs> as Tim the Sorcerer says in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. My wife calls me dear, honey, sweetie, usually love or honey. My children call me dad or father when they're feeling a little more formal or when they're trying to poke fun at me being formal just a little bit. Just a little bit. I still like it. But here we are for episode 296 of this podcast. It's a Sunday morning, January 9th, 2022. And in this episode, I want to dive into the question of whether man is inherently good. Is man inherently good? Are most people basically good? That is a question I've seen crop up from time to time. Usually when it's asked outright, you're either taking some kind of a online internet personality test or your employer or prospective employer wants to get to know their people from an HR standpoint. Do you believe that people are basically good, inherently good. When somebody does something that seems very inconsiderate, even damaging, do you think it's because they have bad motives? Do you think it's because there's just a misunderstanding? Was it just an accident? Were they distracted? What do you chalk it up to? As a Christian, I believe that God is good. That's who I believe is good. God is good. It's interesting in the Gospels, when Jesus is addressed at one point, good teacher, good teacher, and then he's asked a question. Jesus comes back with a question of his own. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, of course, Jesus is the sinless, blameless Lamb of God. And so there's a little bit of a multi-layered aspect to Jesus responding that way. <laughs> it's kind of like when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the crowd picks up stones to stone him because they regard that as blasphemy. When Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. In a sense, in one sense, he is identifying himself with God, which is correct. That's only proper. But in another sense, he's making a statement which aptly summarizes the whole biblical narrative. Genesis to Revelation, man is not 
good. Man is good at the beginning in the sense that he's not sinful before the fall. In fact, God looks at everything that he has made and it's good. And then when he makes man, as I've mentioned often, he says that it's very good. Now, in the sense that man is created in God's image and is reflecting God's image like a clean, crisp, brand new, shiny mirror at the outset. In a sense, God is saying, he's very good. I looked at myself in the mirror and I'm, yeah, man, I'm very good. And it's not conceited when God says that. It's conceited when we say it, but it's not conceited when God says it because it's true. It's accurate. He is good. He's the highest good. He's the source of all that is good. But we don't live in that pre-fall condition. Not yet. And really, not ever. That will never be our state, even post-fall. It's not going to be pre-fall. In some sense, it'll be better than ever because it'll be the fulfillment of God's plans and promises. Everything that God saw was good. Each of those days, he evaluated his work, assessed his handiwork. Then he says it's very good. I think that'll be kind of like what it is pre-fall and post-redemption. Once the redemption story is complete, fulfilled, concluded for this chapter, God's going to look at it and conclude that it's very good. Whereas before it was good, then it will be very good. And then we will be perfect morally, physically, mentally, emotionally, whole in a way that we are not right now. We are not whole right now. If we are the elect, which I, despite having some reservations about five-point Calvinism, certainly hyper-Calvinism, but having reservations about Calvinism, though I do, and not identifying myself as a Calvinist, I'm probably more of an Augustinian, which is well. I do believe where the scriptures tell us that God has elected those he's going to save. He foreknows them. He forechooses them. We can enjoy that future glory and grace now. Even before we've attained it fully, we can look forward to that promise and we can live in light of it now. And we should live in light of it now. It should have bearing on the way we conduct ourselves, the way we carry ourselves. To know that we are already saved and yet our salvation in a sense is still expected. The promise is so sure that we can bank on it now and yet God's still accomplishing his purposes as we speak. We should not be surprised when we find the consequences of people being not whole, needing to be reminded to be holy, for he is holy. All of the New Testament, written to saints, 
testifies to the fact that we need reminding. Even the Apostle Paul, who writes the lion's share of the New Testament, admits, not that I have already attained, but I press on. Forgetting what's behind, I press on. We're reminded in the New Testament to bear one another's burdens and to have humility. And where the humility comes in is, for one thing, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, not thinking of ourselves as more important than other people. On what basis would we be more important than other creatures made in God's image? If that's our framework, if that's our schema for perceiving those people, they're created in God's image, I'm created in God's image. Well then, that has a leveling effect. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That is a consequence. That statement, that conviction where human rights are concerned is an outgrowth of the conviction that we are fallen creatures for one thing, or else you wouldn't need to lecture people about protecting rights, respecting rights, preserving rights. You wouldn't have to put restraints on the governed or the governed class. But it's also downstream of the conviction that we are created in God's image equally. That is equally true. Someone who is born with a significant handicap, a physical impairment, they may literally be and very obviously not whole. Suppose they're born missing a limb or more than one limb or something just didn't quite fully develop in the womb. Maybe there were chemicals that were introduced that caused a mutation, inhibited cell growth there early on when it needed to happen. Maybe a growth happened somewhere else that it wasn't supposed to. Sometimes people are born with significant challenges. In fact, every person who's born has significant challenges. And humility helps us to face those challenges with resilience. There's a wonderful exchange between God and Job at the end of the book of Job in the Old Testament. And it's thought to be a very old book. Don't let where it's placed in the sequence of books in the Old Testament give you the false impression, perhaps false impression, that that's where it occurred chronologically. But Job questions over and over, why him? Why is this happening to me? Why did you let this happen to me? And based on the way that God reframes the question, for one thing, there's a chiding effect towards Job. There is. I think it's gentle and I think it's nuanced and I think it's comprehensive in a way that is not destructive or damaging to Job. In fact, it's restorative. You have forgotten who you are and who I am, basically, is what God said to Job and what God says to us when we read the book of Job if we have ears to hear it. But that humility helps us to bear our own burdens. It helps us to bear with others' burdens. 
It's when we start thinking, I'm too good to suffer. I don't deserve this. I'm a good person. Do you think you're a good person? I think I'm a good person. That's when we are indignant and outraged that we are suffering. Well, I shouldn't suffer. I shouldn't have to suffer. Well, consider this, if you will. The perfect Lamb of God set the example for us. We're told that also throughout the New Testament. He didn't deserve to suffer. And yet he approached that with humility, obeying the will of the Father. If that was the will of the Father, that this should happen to him, or that he should persevere under trial, well then, he did. And we have our salvation and our hope in that. So, we find that with regards to our broken state, we shouldn't be surprised if we have some suffering because we're broken, and we have other suffering because other people are broken, and we have still other suffering because the creation is broken. We don't want to be consumed by that and crushed, but then that's where God's grace comes into the picture. That's why it's important for us to understand God's grace. That's part of why it's such good news, is because it lifts that burden. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says. We don't go the other direction, though, and say we should sin that grace might abound all the more. God forbid, Paul says. We don't use God's grace as a license for sin. But what we do is we adopt that mindset of, yes, the creation is broken. Yes, the people around me are broken. Yes, I'm broken. And that's serious, and we need to reckon with that. But God's not broken. God's plan and purpose is not broken. His grace is sufficient for me. His strength is shown perfectly in weakness. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That really is what we should be conserving. Free market capitalism is not an end unto itself, but it is a fruit. I'm convinced it is a fruit of that conviction that on the one hand, God's grace is sufficient for us. And on the other hand, we live in a broken creation. The fact that we have a nation of laws and not a nation governed by people, one person or lots of people, it's not an autocrat system at least it's not supposed to be, because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket of this person. It's also not a pure democracy, because you don't want to trust the crowd. Very often, trusting the crowd and having direct democracy is just a hop, skip, and a jump from autocracy, because you find somebody who's very, very adept at manipulating the crowd, and they play on that 51% to terrorize the 49%. So you don't want to trust in the crowd. As far as logical fallacies go, you don't want the argument from authority, humanly speaking. And you also don't want argumentum ad populum, the argument from what's popular. What we want is truth. And the truth is that we are broken. The 
the people around us are broken. The creation is broken. It still has so much of that goodness that God created because God is good. He only gives good gifts, but it's still, it's a broken creation until the new heavens and new earth come. And we can look forward to that new heavens and new earth. We can start practicing now how we might think, feel, act, relate to one another and to God in that new heavens and new earth. I think that's a fantastic idea. That's a great way for God to find us busy when Jesus comes again. But modern secular man really loses his grasp on reality when he, for one thing, says in his heart, there is no God. That's the first step towards becoming a complete and utter fool. Saying in your heart, there is no God. Now you can ask questions. Don't get me wrong. I've certainly asked them. How can this be true and this be true in light of God's goodness, in light of God's sovereignty, in light of God's love for me, in light of God's promise here? And he did that there and he did this here. But humility means that when we face a thorny question, something confusing, we don't immediately assume we have the right answer and then stubbornly cling to our own faculties. Ironically, counterintuitively, the best science is done with the condition of humility. Confidence, yes, but humility. Because humility means you admit what you don't know. Confidence in the right place, well-placed, not misplaced. Confidence will see you endeavoring to learn more, to know more. You can have confidence that broken though we are, God did give us a mind. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. God has blessed us with talents. Talents, by the way, for those of you who didn't know, talents were just a unit of currency in the ancient world. A talent was a piece of money. And we talk about talents, people being talented in figurative language, which comes down to us from the parable of the talents, which is a story about a master giving certain amounts of money to three servants, three slaves, if you will, trigger warning. The master gives a certain amount of money to one slave, a different amount of money to a different slave, and a different amount of money to a different slave. The first, second, and third slaves have different amounts of money from the master, which also goes to show that inequality of means is baked into the equation by God. It pleases God for there to be variability, not uniformity. But the modern secular man who says in his heart there is no God foolishly concludes very often that in order for there to be justice, all have to be uniform and equal. Well, that's just silly. What about the folks who were born short and the folks who were born tall? Do you have to stretch the short people and trim the tall people so they're all the same height? Of course not. Some people are born with an advantage. My wife is reading a book right now, Deep Nutrition, about how 
being well-nourished, picking foods that have the right vitamins, nutrients, minerals, proteins, good quality representatives of those things in the right quantity at the right intervals, coupled with good rest, hydration, exercise, can actually have a back-and-forth relationship with our genetics. There's a certain plasticity to our genetics. As science has gotten better in the modern day, we have learned that our genetics keep something of a record of not only our choices, life choices, stress we've put ourselves under and endured or avoided, habits we've formed or failed to form, environment, choices, culture, diet. It all goes into the equation. And I'm not sure we should go either or on the whole nature versus nurture versus choice debate. I think it's all of the above. The exact portions, proportions of each relative to the others, only God knows for sure. But in this book, and it caught my eye, there's some pictures of people, attractive people, and their facial features and whatnot are being analyzed. And you know, without thinking about it, when you look at an attractive person, that person's really attractive. Well, why are they attractive? I don't know. They're just a good-looking person. Well, what is it about them that makes them good-looking? Well, this book argues part of what makes people attractive or unattractive is health. Are you healthy? Well, that's just another way of saying, are you long for this world? <laughs> now, the evolutionary mindset would say, our ancestors over millions of years have chosen mates on the basis of whether the species would be furthered because the species is furthered by those who make the right choices to further the species. So also the traits which help to further the species and a keen interest in the traits which help to further the species are passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so if you look at an underdeveloped jaw or a pronounced bulge in the forehead or something like that, it could be attractive if it indicates health. For a man, the way that women down through the millennia have been attracted to men is, is this man going to be a good husband, a good father to my children? Is he respectable? Is he intelligent? Is he hardworking? Is he strong? Is he capable? Is he brave? Does he have good judgment? Physical fitness can be a measure of this. Material wealth can be a measure of this. Are you fit? Are you healthy? Are you going to be around? If you look like you're not going to last, but a few more weeks, a few months, well, I may really, really like you as a person, but long term, we're wired to maybe not be drawn to that person. For a woman, 
she wants to know when she's very pregnant, like my wife is right now, is her husband going to work and protect her and the children, provide for them, give them good direction, give them good instruction, be patient, be wise, be loving, be kind, be strong. And for a man, a man is looking and saying, are you beautiful? But what does that mean? And that's what this book gets into. What does it mean that these people are thought of as being handsome or beautiful? Actually, this trait here implies good nutrition when they were in the womb or through life. If you've ever seen those pictures of somebody before they started doing meth and years after doing meth, you know a dramatic example of what that's like. Everything we're putting into our bodies has chemical property. And that chemical property, if our bodies digest those things, or if we lose certain things because they're carried away with these compounds we're putting into our bodies, whether we gain or we lose certain things comes out in the way our skin and our hair and our bones and our fingernails and our eyes are regenerated. As they break down, they're replaced. As you wear them out, new cells come in to take their place. And however well we eat, however well we rest, however much exercise we get, however much we study, endeavor to make good choices, at the end of the day, we are still broken people, surrounded by broken people in a broken creation that by God's grace is going to be refreshed, renewed, power cycled, if you will, given a factory reset with us carried through in a cleaned up, updated state, in a functional state, in a lasting and enduring state. This is the debug, if you will, for eternity. It's good that we recognize marks of health and that we're drawn to that. We're drawn to a beautiful scene of the sun rising or setting over the mountains, snow-capped trees, eagles flying above, a river running lazily down the side, trout swimming in it, mayflies hovering above it. There's some deer. There's a fox. There's a bear. There's a squirrel. There's people over there hiking, and there's people over there fishing, and there's someone just taking it all in. It's good that we would be appreciative of that as signs of God's goodness. Enjoy those things in light of God's character. It's also good that we don't assume that man is inherently good, that the creation is as it was originally intended to be or as it will be when it's refreshed. It's good that we reckon with both of those. There's goodness here. There's also the taint of sin, the curse of sin and death. 
in me, in that person, in this creation. I think as I've talked over the past months and year about cancel culture and wokeism and all this, trust the science and my distrust for experts who emphasize how we all need to trust them. When somebody says, trust me or else, I'm going to destroy your life. Typically, as a rule, I don't trust that person very much. But both of those responses to our own selves and the people around us and the creation we inhabit, both the admiring and being drawn to health and beauty and goodness and also the appropriate response to brokenness, to sin, to death, both of those are off the rails apart from God. We can neither appreciate truth and beauty and goodness as we ought to apart from God, nor can we reckon with brokenness and sin and suffering apart from God. Cancel culture has no grace. There is no grace, no chill in cancel culture. Wokeism is a bad song that plays over and over again. It is hubris because it presumes that those who are, as they call themselves, woke, that they are the anointed, clairvoyant, initiated. They're inherently good now. And nobody else can do right. They can do no wrong, and nobody else can do any right, which is the fast track to hypocrisy and all sorts of oppression and tyranny and evil. Anything good gets smeared because it may just possibly sort of, if you look at it with your head tilted at this angle from that direction, it may be perceived as a microaggression or it may trigger that person. It may remind so-and-so of colonialism or white supremacy or patriarchy or heteronormativity. It's a flesh-eating disease. <laughs> An aggressive one. I think, and this is just a little bit of speculation on my part, but I think part of why this whole woke business has taken off is because at a certain point, our culture moved away from faith in God writ large, culturally. I'm reading this really interesting book, hoping to finish it soon, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is the author. I'm not terribly far in, but it's not a terribly long book either. But it's a new theory of secularization. And I'll update you as I finish it. But her premise is this, that as the family breaks down, so also does what historically has been a primary vehicle for transmitting fear of God, love for God, reverence for God. You might call it religion. The structured culture around how we relate to God as a community, as a body, as a collective? How do we collectively, culturally, as a community, relate to God and one another? 
the family breaking down in turn led to a breakdown of religion, a breakdown of our faith in God, that God exists to begin with. And consequently, anything that he said about who we are, why we're here, what we should be about, where we're going is similarly discarded. Why would you consider what somebody who doesn't exist says or did or is doing or will do? First, it starts with marriage. It starts with marriage. It started with marriage in the garden and it starts with marriage in society. I hope with this new schedule, I'm able to get into writing my second book. I kicked around a couple of different options for what that would be. I've got several books in mind that I'd like to write at some point, time allowing, God willing. But this is why we got married. Why should you value marriage? What is marriage? What's it for? What's the value in it? Is it a hassle sometimes? If so, what's the offset? What's the purpose? It starts with marriage. The breakdown of marriage in the West, the institution of marriage was undermined, and that in turn meant that more and more children over the past century in this country grew up without fathers. No father in the home means that those children are getting only the mother's input. And the mother's input is very, very important. But God ordained the family to be a vehicle for producing godly offspring. And that task of producing godly offspring is not supposed to happen in a lopsided, one-sided way. It's just not. It is a, a broken thing when the mother is the only one giving the instruction and there is no father in the home. It's a broken thing. Very often, daughters who grow up with only their mother's input conclude that they don't need no man. Mom didn't need a man. I don't need a man. They think that, but then they become double-minded because on the one hand, mom did it okay without, and that's the example that was set for me. But on the other hand, it's still hardwired into them that they want a husband and they want their children to have a father after they grew up without a father, but they don't know what that looks like. Sons, meanwhile, growing up with only the mother's input because the father is out, he's gone, he's absent, he's AWOL. Sons grow up, for one thing, resenting their fathers and in turn resenting themselves, filled with a lack of confidence, with an insecurity, with a broken sadness about why wasn't he here? Why didn't he show me what I needed to know? Why didn't he teach me what I needed? needed to learn? Why didn't he set an example for me that I could follow? Sons very often worry when they grow up without a father in the home that listening to their mother's input too much will turn them into a woman, which is not a good thing to become, by the way, if you're a man. I know that's a very controversial thing to say these days, but if you're a man, it's a very not good thing to become a woman. God made you a man Maybe you're not a very good one, 
And so you're thinking of throwing in the towel, trying being a woman. But maybe instead of trying to become something you're not, you should try to become a better version of what you are. Maybe you should try to discover what does it mean to be a man. Maybe you didn't grow up with a father in the home. Well, let's deal with that. You need a father figure? Allow me to introduce you to God the Father, who is perfect. Read his word. There's instruction. Read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, if you're 35 and married, (laughs) as the joke goes. But women wanting to become men, men wanting to become women, is downstream of marriages that either fell apart or never started to begin with, catechizing of children, which fathers should have done, but they were absent and therefore did not do and could not do. Broken marriages mean broken children. And we're all broken. It's a broken creation. We're broken people. But that doesn't mean you need to go breaking creation even harder. (laughs) Breaking yourself still further and harder. Breaking the people around you still further and harder. If you can help it, by God's grace. Part of the good news, part of the gospel, is not just a restoration of our relationship with God, as though the spiritual is all that matters and matter is unspiritual. Part of what gets restored as a consequence of the good news of Jesus Christ is our relationship with one another, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship with creation. And part of how that happens is that God's word informs our thinking about those things. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, it says in the scriptures. So if we think that it's all meaningless, there's no purpose, we're going to act like that's the case. It's not the case. That's not true. We're believing a falsehood, believing a lie when we believe that there is no meaning and there's no purpose. There's no reason for us to be here. There's nothing for us to be about or do. We're not going anywhere. Life sucks and then you die. That's not true. That's a lie there's a lot of people who believe that lie. And because times are tough right now, they're clocking out in record numbers. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Your guides have swallowed up the course of your paths. Isaiah chapter three says, I touched on this briefly in the last episode. Et tu, Ted Cruz, how we need to not embrace a conservative kind of cancel culture. We should be looking at a way to try and restore our fallen brethren or our enemies. Love your enemies. Anybody can love their friends. Well, I I shouldn't say that. Some people are apparently not terribly good at it. Some people are especially good. Other people are not so good at loving their friends. Plenty of people are not very good at loving their family. But loving your enemies? Doing good to those who persecute you? Praying for those who despitefully use you? That's a miracle. But it's possible 
if our worldview, our perspective is God originally made this good, it's not inherently good anymore. And you should expect the results which follow from it being a fallen creation, from these people being inherently sinful, from we ourselves being inherently sinful. You should expect to see evidence of that. And we do see evidence of that all around us and in us. But a conservative movement based on the conditions that we're in right now, in order to have any longevity, any success rate is going to have to be restorative. We're past the point of conserving. We need to get to the business of restoring. It's a fixer upper project, ladies and gentlemen. Now we can restore and we should restore with an eye to what was done well before. Also, with full knowledge that the people we look up to from decades and centuries and millennia past were also living in this fallen, broken context. They were also people created in the image of God who were imperfect, sometimes diabolically so, sometimes hell-bent on being evil and wicked, getting all they can, canning all they get, sitting on the can. That was their plan for life. Others, well-meaning, brilliant, brave, courageous, insightful, inventive, creative, beautiful, beautiful people. For a conservative movement moving forward to have legs, it's going to have to have grace, or else we will destroy ourselves and one another. It's going to have to have reverence for God, or else it will have no wisdom. It will be utter folly, and it will fail. It's going to have to have an informed understanding of who we are, who God is, why are we here, where are we going. And that comes from studying God's word, from revering God, revering his word, and applying it to every area of our lives. It's going to require we cultivate a Christian worldview in ourselves, in our spouse, in our children. That must be expressed in our friendships, in our work relationships, in our politics, in our engagement at church, at the rec center, at the grocery store, on the street, when we go to the mountains and we enjoy the sunrise, the sunset, the fishing and the hiking and the hunting and the photography and all the rest. And when you look at it that way, each one of us playing a role in the restoration, in God's redemptive plan, it's exciting. You have to have a view to this going somewhere good, beautiful, true. That's the kind of conservative movement we need. Not an ugly red version of the blue tyranny where we hubristically presume inherent goodness in all our intentions, all our assessments, all the while finding nothing but fault in everybody outside our ideology and everybody throughout history. We're not content to find fault with everybody 
around us now, we also want to find fault with everybody who's gone before us forever. We're smarter than all of them. That is the height of hubris. That is Thomas Paine foolishly saying in his heart, there is no God. Each generation has the right to revolution, to create meaning ex nihilo out of ourselves, to reinvent the wheel, make it up as you go. We do well to study, not idolize, not worship, not follow uncritically, but study diligently Edmund Burke, Sir Edmund Burke. I got to leave it there, though. It's a Sunday morning. Good morning, Sunday morning. I'm working today. I think it'll be a pretty easygoing day, but we'll see. Don't want to jinx it. You can pray for my wife. We're past the 37-week mark. She's fairly miserable, but she's okay. The kids are getting stir-crazy. I'm feeling a bit spread thin, but by God's grace, there's a plan and a purpose for all of that. By God's grace, he has good things in store for us and for you. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.